do I have the discipline to walk away from money knowing that this money, this project is going to literally set me back? If you are not serving yourself first, you were really just an employee of your clients. And that's a tough pill to swallow. You guys, that is woodworker, business diva, HGTV star, mom and mentor, Rachel Taylor of Rachel Builds. Anyone in business, starting a business, or just living will take away a nugget or two from this episode. And if you like it, please share it in your IG stories or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or the Podchaser app because that's what you do for 100% independently recorded and produced podcasts. And I'm your host, Mike Kenoki builder in the oddly wonderful Fairbanks, Alaska. If you want to know more about the show, check out the 2023 intro at episode 109 of this podcast. Haha, <laughs> but that's enough for me. Let's hear a couple more tasty sound bites to whet your appetite for today's episode with Rachel Taylor. So I took six months, lived off of a little tiny bit of savings. I had four kids in high school as a single parent in expensive Los Angeles. And I, did just, I decided to become a woodworker. It would have just physically made me sick to stay printing on a child. But if they ask questions, that someone will be there to invite them in. Um, and I think that's probably the ground floor. That's foundation, foundational to any success is if you feel like you're welcome to the table, you'll figure it out from there. But, you know, I was I always joke that the man who marries me is going to wish I had a handbag and high heel problem because my tool problem is way worse than than that. The biggest part of bravery in acknowledging it is understanding where you are flawed, not ignoring it, and recognizing ways to outsource those parts. It's almost like having these personal boundaries, healthy boundaries intact, so that as you're going throughout your business day, making hundreds of decisions, you're not exhausted by entertaining the ones that uh, encroach on your boundaries. So in a way of become a better person through practicing healthier business decisions. You know, the distant cousin of, of trusting your instinct is knowing that there's di the difference between your instinct and your fears. There's a lot of things that I want to do with my time and my career and my knowledge. And those have now become more important than allowing myself to donate my time to things that are not worth my time. How do you sustain yourself as a high value person? The answer is find your new North star and follow it. Find something bigger mm. than the thing that you're doing right now and make it so important to you that you know that you're literally distracting yourself or cheating yourself out of getting closer to your North star because of the small sidestep that you took. The first step that I took was to stop looking at what other people were doing you sort of, you're, you can be that person that will laugh at jokes that aren't funny, or you can be that person that just sort of steps back and listens to it and doesn't engage in the parts that are just too much energy to be something that you aren't. And that's, that's me. I think that people deserve to live in a way that is commensurate with their values, not just their wallet. Overthinking is just a killer of all dreams and all hopes. It's a liar, actually. And if I were to give men a message, do not ever make the mistake that you are what you make, what you earn, or what you provide. You are what you say, what you act, and what you show. 
And that's all a good woman, a good family, and a good client would ever want or expect from you. You know, when you're happy, the money chases you. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Contracting Handbook. My next guest is a carpenter, a furniture designer, and a crew member on HGTV's Curb Appeal Extreme, among many other things. It's Rachel Taylor. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing today? Well, hello, hello. I'm doing great. Thank you so much. What an introduction. Thank you. You're really out there doing great things, and, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you were able to set some time aside to hang out with me and talk about your life. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, I definitely am out there probably <laughs> figuratively and literally. <laughs> um, I do have many, many plates spinning in the air at all times. It's a lot of fun to be able to do what I do. And For anybody listening out there, you can check out Rachel's work on at Rachel Builds on Instagram, where she has lots of mm -hmm. cool movies about what she's doing daily in sunny LA. And Mm -hmm. in in Nashville uh Rachel and I talked the other day you guys for a little bit and she left a lucrative career in marketing in retail to chase her craft her trade as a carpenter so Rachel want to tell us how that went it's a pretty uh traditional story once you get to that big move that you make I've found that many people um, who've made a move like mine that was completely out of their career, out of their element and into something new, a lot of people end up doing the thing that they love um, in the way that I do it. Um, and I think that you might agree. It's like you fall into something that you love and it wasn't a plan. I was a business startup expert after starting a couple of businesses for myself many years ago when I was 23. And I uh, ran a couple of successful smaller retail business um, businesses in the children's industry that then led me to be a consultant. And 15 years later, I had sort of chased the money, not the passion, not the thing that I love to do. So I kept reinventing and sort of um, aligning myself more and more with what my clients needed rather than something that I love to do. And I found myself miserable 15 years into it. And at that point, the part of the retail business startup expertise that I loved, that I didn't want to give up, was the, the sort of build out that you do for retail space when you start a new business. I was always incredibly intrigued by the journeyman and the trademen that put together the vision that I had created for my clients. And so I figured, you know, I'm going to leave it all. And I literally had sort of a take this job and shove it moment with, you know, the Jerry Maguire fishbowl and, you know, taking the lamp like from the jerk. And I've just aged myself now because that's a mm. movie that happened. Dated, uh, yeah. 30 years dated. ago. <laughs> <laughs> you saw but it. it was that moment where it was so painful that I think actually became that diving board that you needed, that spring that you need, that launch um, to be able to sustain such a big lateral move that I made in my career. So I took six months, lived off of a little tiny bit of savings. I had four kids in high school. 
as a single parent in expensive Los Angeles. And I did just, I decided to become a woodworker and I found some tools and did some business trades with my expertise in exchange for equipment. And I found myself completely prepared to go into business as a woodworker with no experience. <laughs> and, um, you know, I did it with mouths to feed and my back up against the wall and cash dwindling quickly, living in a 750 square foot one bedroom apartment with four kids. Yeah. Uh, well, I think at that point it was three. Yeah. And big kids too, I seven foot tall. <laughs> So, you know, when your back is against the wall, you have a million reasons to make it all work. And that's sort of the story of my life. I've always been sort of uh, it's very easy for me to step into something new and take a risk. A little bit harder for me to be a finisher, uh, but that's a part of my skill set that I know to sort of outsource whenever I need to move quickly. Nonetheless, I found myself in an amazing career of carpentry, taught myself um, furniture uh, sort of upcycling first. And that sort of taught me joinery. And then I tried my hand at a couple of furniture pieces that sold, started a consult or a custom furniture design business and did so on Instagram. And um, looking back on the last five years, I couldn't be happier with making that decision to go from an executive corporate background with my business skills and become a tradesperson. There must've been a lot of hard choices in, in leaving that career though. I mean, obviously, you went through some of that because you had mouths to feed, mm -hmm. but you weren't feeling it. You were miserable, you said. And, and there were people that had expectations, people in that, in your career there that were probably going, what? You can't, you can't go. Absolutely. Um, I was, I was sort of enticed by clients who offered money to stay and um, it would have just physically made me sick to stay. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, it wasn't anything that I wanted to do. And for me, in my brain, I, I, I would say I'm equally left brain, right brain. I love to create and design, but I also love a good spreadsheet when I come across one. Uh -huh. um, and for me, you know, ending up in marketing was really just a game of intangibles. It was creating something that I could never really take credit for. Um, you know, I could tell my influence in it when I walked away from it and so could my clients. But while you're in it, being paid to do it, there's never really anything tangible that you're building. You can't say, aha, you know, unbox it and say, hey, this is what I've done. And that bothered me. Mm. Um, I was always very enamored by people who created things and wondered where they got the skills or the, even the bravery of taking all of those steps and ending up with something that they could either sell or enjoy or sit on. That's crazy to me. Um, my father was a carpenter. So it was around that. And all of my uncles on that side of the family were also um, in the industry somehow, either an architect or a builder or designer. My mother's brother was um, a architect and did big, huge Indian reservation casinos. Um, so I was enamored by it, but nobody showed the girls in our family. I don't think the girls really expressed interest in it. So it was sort of this game of it's it's always been in the back of my mind, but it always terrified me to try. And turns out that's my personality. If it's too small, I just lose interest. But if it's a game that I have to actually master, I'm I'm in it to win it. So this is perfect for me. It's interesting that you say that your your parents were involved in in the industry and then the girls weren't 
were kind of left out of it. I guess that was that's kind of a a sign of those times, huh? Absolutely. I think it's just it just was in that moment there were big role um, dichotomies mm. in terms of genderized careers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was one of those kindergartners that, you know, I heard the other girls say that they wanted to be a nurse. And so I wanted to be a nurse. I just wasn't exposed to, you know, many images of people who looked like me, um, you know, in, in roles that were non-traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was me growing up in Berkeley, California, you know, having grown up in that environment allowed me to feel like I could do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the trades and something that's <laughs> literally represented by men at the tune of 97% was just really something that I felt was interesting. And I felt like um, there wasn't anything physical that I couldn't do that a man couldn't. And I don't even rep- remember making that representation in my mind in terms of what could I or could I not do. It was never a comparison minded mentality. It was just, I love the idea of making a cabinet or being able to create something that is out of my price point and doing something about it so that I can have what I want. And so mm-hmm. I really, you know, the more that I did this, the more I understood that really wasn't necessarily about me either. It was about sort of representing that, you know, women, even if I could influence one little girl and say, here's my drill, you're going to learn how to use it. Don't be scared. You can do this. And to give her that experience um, will leave an indelible impression. And uh, most of my clients do have little kids. And that's exactly what I do. I put a tape measure in their hand or I put a drill in their hand. They do it by themselves. And the feedback that I get from both the kids and the parents, just, it's, it's worth its weight. Um, Yeah. And they'll remember that you included them somewhere that they weren't invited or welcomed, you know, giving a kid that VIP feeling makes them feel special. And then they tap into that every single time they are, they're inquisitive about something. What you're doing is you're imprinting on a child that if they ask questions, that someone will be there to invite them in. Um, And I think that's, probably the ground floor that's foundation foundational to any success is if you feel like you're welcome to the table you'll figure it out from there but you know I was I always joke that the man who marries me is going to wish I had a handbag and high heel problem because my tool problem is way worse than than that I have Um, some I have some tool I have some tool envy (laughs) I I, I don't have my tools aren't as nice as yours um that nice stuff helps me to be a much better carpenter than I probably am. So I got to give it up to the tool brands that make me look good for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, precision tools, there's less, there's less mistakes and less doubt. So it's really nice to be able to learn a craft like mine yeah. on some really amazing tools. Yeah, you guys check it out out there. It, you'll, you all have tool envy. I've got so many tools because I had a crew that I'm like too cheap to go upgrade everything still but well well construction tools are a different thing i mean if you have a crew and you're handing those tools and the bits and all of the parts off to a big team i mean i would just be i think i'd be a little bit of a headache just wondering if people treated them all the right way and put the bits back and all of that stuff you know a minute ago you were talking about you know coming into the trades and like there's this there is a you know kind of a dichotomy gender dichotomy of course that still exists in 
amazingly in this year and this age. But, um, you know, for yourself, you, you made this big transition. Do you have self-doubt at times and, and how do you deal with it? Oh, self-doubt is something that happens every hour. Um, and because I'm faced with dealing with it so often with every step of everything that I build, because everything's custom. Therefore, sometimes the first time I've ever done that particular method or joinery or use that type of wood or that wood at that certain thickness, um, there's always a self-doubt because I literally have to go to work every single day, knowing that I'm going to face something that I've never done before. It's my proximity to all of those moments that challenge me that have sort of acclimated me to understanding that there's going to be a lot of pain, suffering and failure and doubt um, every single time I go to work. That has built my resilience in a way that I never expected. Um, I don't think I realized it um, until a couple years in where there was more expectations of me and my productivity had to increase in order to build my business in order to increase sales. But every single hour I am faced with a setback or I don't have the right bit or I'm on, I'm on a, uh, you know, I'm, it's milling day, let's say, and I am running out of blades or running out of sanding paper or materials constantly being on top of all of those moving parts, pun intended, um, will kind of drive you crazy sometimes, but to be able to finish anything, it's really not about me being the best carpenter. It's about me being the most productive and the most organized and being a finisher. Um, it scares me every single day. I have a lot of, um, sometimes my builds keep me up at night. Um, for instance, I am building a double bunk bed for a client. It's a full uh, under a twin. And the design that my client approved was something that I just sketched by hand and then realized, oh, this is going to be a real big pain to actually manufacture. So the things that wake me up at night is where can I find an eighth inch thick piece of furring strip that's smooth, that's stain grade, that can bend at that arch that I just designed on this godforsaken headboard that's two, you know, two levels tall that has to look like fine furniture. These are things that will test your bravery and um, keep you at sort of the, the peak of your resilience because it's very easy to fold. It's very easy to get nervous or to shut down. Um, but you know, when you put yourself through another, enough hoops of fire and when you fail enough times, you decide, okay, well, that's not gonna work out well. I need to do this another way or I need to, take my physical health more seriously so that I can stay physically resilient for a 10 hour painting day. Um, mm. You learn to fine tune yourself. And I think that if you give yourself enough time and grace, you start to learn uh, the parts of your personality that make you a really good worker in whatever uh, vertical that you are working in, mine being carpentry. And then you start to learn the parts of you that you don't really want to necessarily uh, fine tune. Maybe that's the part that now that I've worked so hard, I can give that part away because somebody else is better at that part. Um, a lot mm. of people, you know, they'll identify their barriers to entry through their fears. And um, 
I've learned that the smart way of doing business is to not be the jack of all trades in terms of I'm, you know, building, I'm designing, I'm also doing my own renders and sketching, I'm doing my own sales and marketing, I'm building my own website and I'm managing my own Instagram and doing my own social media. That's not the way to win the game. The way to win the game is to take a look at the things that slow you down that you're not very good at, which takes bravery to admit to yourself. And then you set aside a little bit of your dough to hand that off to somebody who doesn't have an emotional tie or as much of a production setback as you do in that one part. So really, you know, bravery, the biggest part of bravery in acknowledging it is understanding where you are flawed, not ignoring it and recognizing ways to outsource those parts because that's not necessarily something that you need to fine tune. I think sometimes recognizing the parts that are flawed or underproductive or are failures to launch, you can isolate it and you can outsource it. And then that helps you understand how it feels to be actually in business for yourself, not just a one-man band, but a business. Bravery is good. You hit on so many things there. I echo the sentiment of being up at night. Mostly for me, it's when I'm just irrational, though. I wake up with some irrational thing going on and I can't sleep. When you encounter these, these challenges with your, build, with your craft, do you reach out to other tradespeople you meet on Instagram or, or in your community and say, hey, I need this? Or are you kind of isolated solving problems in your shop? I used to stay isolated solving problems, and that was a good thing. It's important for you to be able to, um, you know, sort of use deductive reasoning and to try different things because sometimes just trying these things before asking for help will give you the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, other times, again, outsourcing knowledge means knowing that, okay, if I just, if this one step is taking me so long, but it's not a step that needs to be repeated. It's just one thing. I am going to reach out to this, the most amazing community of people who want to see one another come up and be successful. I'm going to reach out to any number of people that follow me or not. There's some people I'll, I'll message them and say, Hey, I saw that you, you know, bent a piece of eighth inch birch ply around this cash wrap. Did you do an inside, you know, an inside kerf cut in order to bend it? And the guy messaged me back. I'd never talked to him before in my life. He's like, nope, just bend it around the panel and, you know, wish myself luck. <laughs> These are the things that are totally invaluable. I mean, I could have spent an entire afternoon and for me, time is money. Um, trying to figure out the best way to do this between either research or trial and error. And between the cost of materials and the cost of my time, you know, learning how to ask for help or learning when to just get a quick answer for something that isn't something that you can monetize. It's not something that you need to necessarily know how to do yourself or to figure it out on your own. That's just, that's just good business. Yeah. I love that the answer to that particular one was just do it basically. Yeah. You know, cause, cause a lot of times you're, you're second guessing yourself and you go, and then you ask someone, they're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what I would do. You know, you go. Absolutely. And yeah. that part 
is the most rewarding part. When you mm -hmm. kind of figured it out and your intuition says, hey, this is kind of working. You're not sure if it's the way. Um, I think the wonderful part about being in the trades is that, yeah, you could, you could be trained, you could be certified, you could have gone to trade school for certain things. But most of the time in any industry, you're going to find that your biggest validation is going to come from experience. And experience doesn't happen unless you fail, because failure is what teaches you what not to do and how to fine tune it to get to something better. So that stuff is indelible. I can't tell you how many times I've torn through an expensive piece of walnut and you know did something really silly in hindsight. But in that moment, I thought I knew what I was doing. I was trying. And you know, through trying, I'm, I've learned several different things. It's, you know, between the thickness, the speed of my machine, the size of my bit, and the, the hardness of the wood, I'm learning so many other lessons when I fail at one part of that, you know, of that lesson. Um, my point is, is that you have to look for pain and failure and embrace it, because those will teach you five other lessons that you, you know, that you weren't waking up in the morning hoping to, to learn. So yeah, doing it yourself is really the golden hour. And then when someone comes behind you, you know, another tradesperson or someone in your peer group and says, yeah, that's the way I do it too. You start to learn to trust your intuition with that validation. Yeah. That, that affirmation coming from someone you look at as kind of an authority on what you're doing. And they're just like, oh yeah. That's how you do it. And then you're kind of, that's right. It just builds so much confidence in that moment. Um, it really does. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, you, you're outsourcing, sharing information, getting information from, from people. And you really, you know, something I kind of envy is that you really get to practice your craft as a, and as a, as a business person. And, you know, I went the path of being a general contractor and mm -hmm. my craft essentially went to the side because, because I just became a business manager. Right. That, you that you was became an ATM. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to put it. And a glorified yeah. expediter. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, that was something very early on. Um, you know, when I first started woodworking, uh, you know, the easiest thing for me was to build cutting boards, but I was dabbling in, you know, home improvements in a property that was in the family so that I could try a lot of different things on the contracting side. I've always uh, owned homes where I was able to do my own tile and do my own wall treatments and do my own tongue and groove and all of these things that I trained myself over the years to do. And of course, then built out all of these retail stores using so many different materials and lots of experience there. So by the time I touched tools, I sort of realized what I didn't want to do. And that was, I never wanted to be so incredibly successful with furniture that I ended up being in some sort of, you know, 20,000 square foot factory, you know, pumping out $500,000 a month in sales. And uh, I'm under fluorescent lights and, uh, you know, miserable in an office. That's not what I want to do. Um, so, you know, making sure that I didn't make the same mistake that I did in, as a business executive 
which was to go, the money was going was really huge. And sometimes you have to make that, you know, that wasn't a mistake. It was just definitely a part of my journey where that lessons behind me, I found some things out about myself and knew that you couldn't offer me any amount of money to be a really successful furniture manufacturer in a warehouse crying my eyes out. It was never going to happen. So um, I think it's a balance of you can, you never have to give up money if you don't want to. You just have to be incredibly creative with how you make your money and how you can uh, scale your time, scale your expertise, scale your labor. Might bring you into some uh, business processes that you hadn't considered before. But for me, especially as a consultant, my whole job as a consultant was to let people know, hey, there isn't anything that you're hiring me for that you can't do yourself. You just have more confidence in me because I've got, I have more experience in it. And so I learned to listen to people, listen to their personalities, to understand and truly believe that a business can never be bigger or better than the person running it. And so it really comes down to your personality type and sort of embracing the things that you're willing to change uh, for, you know, a goal that may not be in alignment with your personality type or learning how to outsource those things that aren't in your personality type so that you can, you know, keep multiple goals without actually having to set yourself back by doing them, by doing things that you're not really good at or just realigning your goals and perspective on how to achieve them so that you just feel happy and peaceful every single day without the anxiety of, is my client going to want something for me that's outside of my wheelhouse and doesn't make me happy? Um, So, you know, at my age, after four kids and over 50 businesses that I created for my clients, uh, eight maybe of which were for myself, you know, I've learned to understand where my happiness, you know, begins and ends. And never again would I do something just for money because I know I'm creative enough to solve problems to where the money will always be there. If I just honest, you know, if I'm just honest with the parts of the business that I know I need to sort of realign and outsource um, in order to stay happy. You know, when you're happy, the money chases you. And then the the problem is how am I going to keep up with all this to stay happy? And when you, when you honestly, decide that your happiness and your peacefulness are far more important, you end up making much better decisions in business. And it's almost like having these personal boundaries, healthy boundaries intact so that as you're going throughout your business day, making hundreds of decisions, you're not exhausted by entertaining the ones that uh, encroach on your boundaries. So in a way I've become a better person through practicing healthier business decisions because I never again want to feel the pain of creating something and building something only to just be totally disappointed that, you know, that like, it's almost like I knew that that decision was funky or untimely or just not in alignment with my end game, my long game. And you could, you can feel it coming. And then, you know, when that one thing happens, you're just like, ah, dang it. I didn't listen to myself. Um, You only go through that certain amount of times before you're like, okay, I'm not a child. I need to listen to, (laughs) I need to learn these lessons 
because as we all know, they will repeat themselves until we learn them. You have such an eloquent way of, of stating that. I, I, it's something that I have learned the hard way myself is, you know, I'm so, da- I'm so like data driven. I want to know facts and numbers and all this stuff. And, but at the end of the day, when, when I don't follow my gut on, on a decision that I'm weighing, mm-hmm. I know that after I've made a decision and didn't follow my gut a couple weeks later, when, when the, when it comes out, it's like, ah, oh. you know, the distant cousin of, of, um, trusting your instinct is knowing the difference between your instinct and your fears. So, you know, distant cousin, cousin is, is fear. Um, sometimes your instincts will tell you, uh, this is not for me, but you have to know the difference between your instincts and the fears that you stop, still might carry. For me, I don't really carry a lot of fear. I carry anxiety. I carry, um, a little bit of, uh, I think, I think maybe just not wanting to disappoint a client. Mm-hmm. And so I really sit and map the best way to move forward with the entire project. So I'm very, that's where the spreadsheet comes back in. I'm super creative. I can design anything. Um, structurally, I've never had anything fail. Um, I sort of, I overshoot in terms of materials and thicknesses and joinery to err on the side of caution, especially when you're building things for people's kids. Um, I look at federal regulations and safety standards in terms of, um, you know, really just dotting my I's, crossing my T's, wearing the belt and the suspender when it comes to design and execution. Um, for me, those anxieties are justified because that means, you know, the safety of my clients. Um, but sometimes I over-obsess on things that really are just out of fear. And I know the difference now. Um, sometimes my gut will tell me to move forward and my gut will be wrong, but at least I know that it wasn't like a big gamble. Um, so it's really less about just going with my gut. I have to really be vigilant and be a gatekeeper of fear. Um, and that's the thing that, you know, honestly, I feel like fear is that one thing if we could just master it, <laughs> um, that, that turns anybody who tries something into a professional. Um, I think that when we take a look at other industries, I'm like a, a big documentary buff and like I love autobiographies and, and bi- biographies because you start to see similarities and consistencies with people who have found success in, in history. And a lot of them have sort of this, you know, they share this, um, the ability to metabolize fear and to process it into something that works for them. And uh, that's what I like to surround myself with because I'm definitely not a, uh, I'm not an expert in any of this, most definitely not an expert of managing fear. Um, But, you know, you try and fail enough times, you sort of understand where bumpers are. They guide you forward instead of sideways so much. Um, A lot of my fear, I I would say, if you were to ask me what my biggest fear is, um, it's making an investment in something that requires time and effort only for it not to pan out. Um, I mean, I think that's the, probably the number one fear for anybody considering doing a business. Like, I have a great idea, but is it really going to pay off? Can I feed my family off of this? Is it worth the time? Is it worth the investment? Is it worth the prototype? Um, 
and to that, I would say, you just have to freaking try. Because if it's such a great idea, I guarantee you, it's either going to be a huge flop or it's going to make you millions. Because if nobody's thought about it or done it that way, and you're a maverick. That's, that's, that's literally foundational to becoming highly successful. And I, you know, it's 50%. It could work well. And then 50%, it may be a bust. But to me, those are pretty good odds. Knowing it's there and using it. I mean, you, you're kind of using it as a tool. Yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely. It's the sharpest tool, honestly, in the shed. <laughs> yeah, sure. Truly. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. You've now created this business of your own. You come out of mm-hmm. marketing and retail. How are you applying what you know from the previous industry to like job costing and, and making sure you're getting what you want for your time? So in retail, uh, whenever you're manufacturing something, uh, we have sort of these markup formulas. Uh, when you go to a trade show and you're a buyer, the markup is 100%. That's called a keystone. So whatever manufacturer creates and you go and buy it and you want to buy it in quantities and put it in your store, that's your inventory. You have a 100% markup from wholesale to retail, but those wholesalers who are the manufacturers, how are they making their profit? Well, the formula for most manufacturers in a lot of industries, I can't say all, is a 5.1 times markup. So whatever your, whatever your cost is of materials and labor, you multiply, multiply that by 5.1 for a very generous cost um, markup that will take care of all of your operations. And, you know, you take a look at any operation and, you know, if you just get the bare bones of the knowledge of, well, my rent for whatever business I have is going to be 10% of my overall cost. So is my labor. My labor is 10%. These are just basic standard formulas from the retail industry. Taking those formulas and infusing them into my production helps me understand which jobs to take and which jobs to walk away from. It also helps me to understand how to price things so that a client gets what they want, but also has options where they understand that a certain joinery or a certain material thickness or a certain solid wood is gonna greatly affect that uh, landing cost. So you really have to be materials um, and process knowledgeable um, before you actually end up making a good amount of money. Then the next thing, honestly, is what is your time worth? My labor, you know, if I were a journeyman just on a on a job site, if I was a general contractor hiring someone, those guys make a hundred, maybe hundred and forty dollars a day here in Los Angeles. I decided a long time ago I didn't want to be a general contractor because general contracting is really about costing out your labor and making a profit off of it. Very, it's not about materials. Whereas retail products are about making a profit off of both. Um, and then when you get into products like mine, there's the perceived value of something versus the actual product cost markup. And knowing how to balance those two things is what I gained from my retail business experience. So there's a lot of things that coming from an executive background um, where you're playing with numbers, playing with perceived value, playing with markups, you're playing with 
um, cost analysis and you're playing with materials. Um, and then of course, COVID taught us a big lesson on material cost fluctuations and being you know, on top of it there. Um, there. There was a point where Douglas fir was the same price as I'd say, you know, a non-surfaced uh, white oak. And it was crazy. It was just crazy times. Mm -hmm. So what I started to do is understand that there were certain things in my product lineup and my product ability that I was not going to offer anymore because I couldn't make the price markup because the perceived value for the thing that I was going to build wasn't warranted. Um, one of my least favorite builds in furniture are dressers because there's so much joinery and there's hardware involved and the markup for a dresser, according to perceived value in the marketplace is not, is not something that I can make my biggest profit margin from. So, you know, if a customer says, Hey, I want this from Pottery Barn, the Pottery Barn's backed up 25 weeks. Can you make it sooner? I can't compete with Pottery Barn prices because their volume is huge. And the perceived value for certain items, furniture items, will not allow me to play with the markup that I know that I should be able to make on other jobs. So I've mentioned five or six things, but you know, if someone takes this five minutes of me talking and plays this back, I've really given you a good, pretty well, like well-rounded understanding of how you protect your profits and how you identify your time. The one thing I wanna really go back to and, and explore a little bit more is how do I price my time out? I don't take jobs unless I price my labor costs out at a certain dollar amount. And if I can't actually look at the job and see how many man hours, woman hours it takes for me to manufacture this, um, I'm not gonna take the job. Um, because this is not worth my time. At a certain point, you get to the place where you sort of look at yourself and go, okay, how do I want to live? And if you don't set yourself up for living that way, it's like being in the kitchen and saying, well, I want to make a really great lasagna. Well, if you just decide that you're going to open up the refrigerator and make the lasagna, chances are you're going to make a pretty crappy lasagna because you're likely not going to have fresh ricotta and the lasagna noodles and all of the bells and whistles that make a really great lasagna. And if you say, hey, I only have a half an hour to make this fantastic lasagna. Well, I'm not coming to dinner house tomorrow because that lasagna is gonna be horrible because you didn't plan. So you gotta plan for what, what your labor and what your time is worth. And to know how to plan requires all of those other steps, which is, um, you know, how can I make the money out of this project so that I can live the way that I want? And do I have the discipline to walk away from money knowing that this money, this project is going to literally set me back? Absolutely. Only you can answer that. I, as a general contractor, I'm just listening, going, yep, I, I'm, I'm kind of speechless after listening to what you just said. Cause it's, well, it's not, it's eye-opening. Cause you know, you yeah. know, these things are bouncing around in your head, you know, the answer and you know, then you're also looking at, well, okay. It's a $4,500 job 
and I've got this 4,500, like my water heater just busted at home. And I need 4,500 bucks to put a tankless water heater in for the upgrade for my own personal needs. So I'm going to take this job because it's just one job, but that job might cost you triple the labor time, like actual time that it takes to execute. And it's not going to be a best use of your time. And mm. I've learned mm. that I am no longer going to eat into my own um, hourly labor value by doing that to myself again, unless I'm willing to work weekends or evenings or work during weeks where I plan to take vacation time for myself. Um, and if you're not organizing your time in your own personal business, as if you were somebody's employee, you're cheating your own company. Just side note there, we can revisit that. But unless I'm willing to just sort of like, it's almost like donating my time to charity. I, if, if I'm willing yeah. to donate my time, okay, great. But it better be for a really good cause. Absolutely. You know? Preach, preach. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If you're going to volunteer your time, you should volunteer it where people need you and they're looking for volunteering. That's Not, exactly right. You don't want to spend your life volunteering for clients. That's right. And God love them. I mean, thank, I'm grateful for my clients, but you know, the business that I am aiming towards, it's not going to be about the clients that want furniture. This is just, a, you know, my phase of my career right now is about teaching myself the business, teaching myself the craft and teaching myself about myself so that I can actually scale my business um, in a direction that really is where I've always wanted to be. And that is to someday have a big hospitality sort of um, facility where it's um, going back to my roots of uh, the hospitality industry. Um, not necessarily an Airbnb, but just sort of like a great big ex like events ranch. Um, tiny homes are a big love of mine. Um, there's a lot of things that I want to do with my time and my career and my knowledge. And those have now become more important than allowing myself to donate my time to things that are not worth my time. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, I think that's the, the answer. Like, how do you, how do you sustain yourself as a high value person? The answer is find your new North star and follow it. Find something bigger mm. than the thing that you're doing right now. And make it so important to you that you know that you're literally distracting yourself or cheating yourself out of getting closer to your North Star because of this small sidestep that you took. As soon as you're, you get better at disciplining yourself about the sidesteps, uh, the more valuable your time will remain. And that's the key to everything. Uh, you are like an inspirational coach. I, this, that is, that is so well stated and, and, and so true. Um, I, I, I have always told guys that are coming up in the industry when they ask me, you know, should I just fill my schedule? And I just say, you know, if there's jobs that you don't, you look at and you're like, you're just going to get paid a, 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 a pittance for what you, what you put into it. Don't take the job, take a few days off and just work on yourself, work on your business, because that's what you need to put your time into is yourself and who you are. And, and a lot of people, you, and, and yeah, well, a lot of, getting, of people don't know that because they don't right. ever take the time to, to like, they don't schedule time away to say, all right, what do I want? Right. How am I going to get it? 
um, a lot of people who are, you know, independent contractors or self-starters or entrepreneurs actually still have an employee mentality and don't think of themselves as an entrepreneur. Many business owners think of themselves as still serving customers. And that doesn't make you an entrepreneur. If you are not serving yourself first, um, you're, you were really just an employee of your clients. And that's a tough pill to swallow. But as soon as you make it real to yourself and you start setting aside time to explore who you are, to really set marker points for yourself, to make sure that you invest in you know, more learning and create more time for yourself and really value your time efficiently, um, that, that, like you're worth the person that you are, you know, that, that is just, it's so rewarding when you see that uh, represented in your lifestyle, um, becoming a little bit more flexible and you're able to do a couple more things for your kids and you're able to do a little more for yourself, you know, not big stuff. Um, but you know, when you buy another tool to add to your, to your kit, you know, it's a good feeling. Like I did something here along the way to give myself a little extra cash to be able to grow and to do something to automate and make my life easier. Um, that's addictive. Um, it's not even something that you have to have as in terms of like a routine mentality. You do it once, it becomes addictive. It's like, if someone hands me some, an almond roca, you don't have to convince me to want another piece. <laughs> that one piece. <laughs> <laughs> is going to have me diving and killing that whole jar. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, what I want to move to now then is you've got your business established in LA, you've got clients that want you, but then you got this phone call to do this show and huge opportunity. Um, massive marketing opportunity or opportunity to work with new people, but you had to pick up and leave. So tell us about all that. Cause that was a complicated so, step. Yeah, it is. Um, because it's, it's that thing again, that I talked about being, you know, the website designer for yourself and the social media marketing person. And then you're also, you know, doing the skill and building for pay and all of these different things that you have to wear all these different hats for. And when I got that phone call for the show, I had to step away from my custom business that I'd worked so hard to build. And I was gone for three and a half months. And when I got back, my, my flow is just a mess. I had clients that were upset with me. I had clients that were mean to me. I had, um, I had a very loose understanding about what I wanted to do next, because there's only so many hours in the day. And if I'm to massage this um, TV hosting career, I have to continue to stay in front of the camera, which means I have to have product projects to be able to display. Um, but I didn't have custom furniture orders at that point, because I had been away from that business for three months. I also wanted to explore uh, getting some branding deals and start getting sponsors for some of the projects that I was doing. But I knew that I didn't want to be, you know, doing YouTube DIY tutorials. So I wove this sort of almost impossible um, 
puzzle of things that I wanted to do and not do. And it became very confusing because these are revenue streams, of course, and to pursue each of them is like a separate business. And I really had a hard time creating uh, the priority flow that was necessary to keep each thing going. Um, part of it threw me into a little bit of a depression because when I don't feel like I have my North Star identified, um, it's really difficult to move forward because I start to question whether or not um, this is something I really wanna do. Um, the first step that I took was to stop looking at what other people were doing. Um, I was looking around almost like shopping other people's world and lives as like a poor child catalog of, hey, what could I do next to make this all work? And I realized that everybody's skill set's so different and everybody's um, revenue streams are so different that there's no one person that could possibly be doing exactly what I'm doing because my journey is so different. Um, and that was the moment where I decided, okay, when I got back from the show, I really needed to sit down quietly and understand what direction I want to take. What are these parts that, you know, am I going to be a one hit wonder? Do I really love television? Turns out the answer was yes. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm good at it. Uh, I love the people that we worked with. I loved working on sets every single day, 12 hours a day, sweating my butt off. And working with the tradespeople who were making us look incredible behind the camera. We had general contractors and crews that we were working on, you know, with that constantly made us look fantastic. Um, I give so much credit to all of these people. They're very hard workers. Um, turns out it made me want to write my own show as well. So I decided, well, I might as well put another iron in the fire and, uh, you know, spin, spin that around and hit that a couple of times. Um, and it, it almost became overwhelming to the point where for me, when I'm overwhelmed, I start to shut down. So I went through a bit of that and that's okay, because I think that that helps you understand what is important enough to you to get out of bed in the morning and be stuck in the middle of fear and insecurity enough to see it through into being something that you can eat from. Um, or that can be a stepping stone for another part of your revenue stream um, that will sort of be an, uh, a support. Um, so identifying how I grow inside of my career was a really tough part, but I got to a place where I realized, you know, it's almost like being in a dinner party and you sort of, you're, you can be that person that will laugh at jokes that aren't funny, or you can be that person that just sort of steps back and listens to it and doesn't engage in the parts that are just too much energy to be something that you aren't. And that's, that's me. I started realizing, okay, this part takes way too much energy. I don't want to edit videos all day long. I'm, 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 I love showing before and afters, but I don't like showing all of the steps because for me, productivity and production with the other areas of my life that I'm actually filling orders for was just too much to ask of me without having a camera crew that I couldn't afford. So I knew I wasn't going to be that YouTube person. So honestly, identifying once again, the things that I love and the things that I don't really love, and then identifying what parts of the, these possible revenue streams actually add up to the bigger things, my new North Star of what I'd like to do 
are actually going to support each other. And so I started identifying the things that were the easiest ways to support myself for the biggest things that I knew for sure that I wasn't willing to let go. Um, and I started to evolve. Uh, part of that includes stepping away from custom furniture building because I've sort of done that. And, I, and there was a reason for it. I taught myself joinery, wood species. I taught myself a skill set to be able to create. And so now I have the knowledge, much like graduating from college, to be able to go and, and talk to other people in that vernacular for the bigger things that I'd like to do. So if someone had told me that, I think I would have moved a little faster. But the, you know, the, the depression of not knowing how to do it, not knowing how to put it all together and not having sort of a template to follow or an example of someone else who'd done it, that way was scary, it was terrifying. I felt like I was out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and there was no Hawaii to swim to. Mm. <laughs> um, and yet that was exactly what I needed because, you know, when you're, when you're drowning, you gotta like cut off the things that are pulling you down because you don't have a choice. And then you start to sort of feel like you're floating. And you're like, okay, I'm not gonna drown, I'm gonna be okay. And you realize that the things that you cut off are the things that you, that you don't depend on, that really don't contribute to the survival of the big thing that you want to do. And that helped. Um, it might not be helping for me to be vague. Um, let me just give you a, a very good example. Just when I started teaching myself um, about furniture, it was taking actual crap off of a corner where someone had abandoned an old table and saying, I can make that into something. And at that moment in time, I thought I was going to be a furniture upcycler for the rest of my career. That's all I knew mm -hmm. until I mastered it and learned about paint and sealers and solvents and joinery and wood species and veneer and all of those things until I realized, yeah, I have everything I need now to actually build this stuff myself. So I graduated and I feel like that's where I'm at now. I've graduated from that phase. I think the toughest part, if someone had told me, okay, in order to graduate, you have to know where you're going next. And I think that every college student who would be listening to this feels that pain. It's like, you're, you've only been told to go somewhere to get the education, but nobody helped you understand the importance of knowing where to apply it. And if you don't know where to apply it or go with it, it, it can make you depressed or feel crazy. So I think the biggest lesson here was being very, very in tune with my new North star and making sure that all the things that I could do to make money from this career ultimately had its primary purpose, which is to contribute to that main long goal. I think as a, as a, like an entrepreneur, they should add like a part of the definition where you are, bipolar in some level like we 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 finish a project and there is some like level of grieving or something that comes in and, and mm -hmm. because you don't have your next thing and you've just poured this creative extension of yourself completely into something and then it's gone mm -hmm. and you leave part absolutely with well the other thing too is especially when you have a tv family that's created it, it's like a mm. company that you're working with mm. And when you really love your job and you're not fired from it, but your job is no longer available to you, 
there's that's sad. That's depressing. You don't you don't want to leave that. Um, again, there wasn't anybody to explain that to me. Uh, and the people that I worked with have been at it for so long that that's just a part of it. It didn't even occur to them to identify it to me because they've acclimated to it. They're resilient. Um, as the newcomer, um, it was really tough to say goodbye to these people that I love so much in the city that I was working in that was 2,500 miles away from my home that I've fallen in love with. I just didn't want it to end. And honestly, I was so engrossed with that work, shooting the show. I didn't even have the, the wherewithal, nor did I care to, to think about doing anything else. Um, my ex-husband was a professional athlete. He was in the NBA for 16 years. And he often talked about how professional athletes really suffer because they really don't want to even think about the end of their career. And most of them are in their thirties, God willing, um, where they have to think about retirement. And that's, you know, there's nobody in, in society that can necessarily echo that, that journey where mm. you're over the hill when you're, when most people are just getting started in their careers and they, there's a, a deep sadness, a huge depression over a loss of identity and a loss of purpose, a loss of intention. Um, and you just, you know, you start to look back and go, I know how lucky, grateful, talented, uh, needed I was. And am I ever going to find that again? Um, and then you see people like Shaquille O'Neal, who enjoyed incredible success. And he also wanted to be a police officer. And he also wanted to graduate from college. And he also wanted to be a philanthropist. And he also wanted to be in media. So his North Star was always bigger than the big thing that we all saw him do and be known for. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of where the little magic lies, just having that North Star and understanding that there will be points where you're not necessarily fired or sued or, or not wanted. It's that, you know, that, that part of that really sweet part of your career has come to a close and you've got to have something lined up, stacked up, waiting for you. Um, that's your new North star that you can always be in love with in horseback riding. When you are riding the ring, they teach you when you're in the curve of the ring and also race car drivers, they teach you to look beyond what's ahead. They actually teach you to look, you know, way into the curve. So your, your head is actually pointed in a different direction than mm. straightforward because you're looking past where you need to be. That's kind of the same way with your career. You have to look beyond where you're at right now and uh, know the direction that you're taking and why. Incredible to take it away from us for a second. I, I wish Shaq could chime in and tell us what his <laughs> current North star is. Cause that guy is like, Every time you read about him, he's just going. He's just going for it. Next thing, next thing. And well, I don't, he's, I, not in, I don't, he's not just in it for the money, that's for sure. Well, I think you just told us what his North Star is, is and that is to be into everything. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, you, I think that's the way to do it. That's kind of what I'm doing right now. I'm just throwing all the chips in the air. And some of them are going to fall off the table. Some of them are going to crack and some of them are going to stay exactly where they were. And, and they're going to be right where I hope they'd land. 
Um, I just feel like for my personality type, I like to sort of throw a lot of things and see what sticks. Because for me, that makes me feel like I have more options. Um, some people like to just aim at one thing and point and shoot. And that's all that that makes them happy. They love to perfect it. They love to keep working at it. I think that's like a scientist mentality. Um, there are a lot of athletes that way where they're like, my, I'm known for being a three-point shooter and that's what I'm going to do. It's my thing. I don't care about rebounding. Um, artists are like that. This is my brand. This is my look. This works for me. Uh, I'm not that way. I, uh, I like to really explore a lot of different things. Um, it shows in my career path. I've never worked for another company before. Everything that I've done lends itself to this North Star that I've had. That's just the biggest thing that I don't really talk about in, in detail because it's, you know, proprietary. Absolutely. But um, it's definitely, there's, there's been no mistake about all of the things I've thrown at myself in my career. So bringing it back to Shaquille, I think he shows through his actions exactly what his North Stars are, which is everything. So if I speak it into existence, I know it always will happen. And I talk to the right people who have a big enough mentality to absorb what I'm saying. You know, you talk to small-minded people, they won't understand what you're saying and they're not gonna give you the reaction that is very encouraging. You talk to big-minded people about these ideas and strategies, they'll hold you accountable because they're excited about big ideas. Um, so that's what I do. Um, some of them don't work out because I realize that it's just not a good business opportunity or it might not be timely or I might not have the resources to do it correctly. Um, but I think just from having developed so many business concepts, I'm able to sort of like freestyle and say, hmm, you know, what if I did this? But I also know when to say, okay, that's an exploration. That's not an actual real monetizable venture that I'm willing to take a chance on. So that I think that's a little bit closer to me, but you know, I do like talking about the things that I hope for myself, the bigger things that I'd like to do. I think that airing those things, you know, some people like to keep that near and dear to themselves, the proprietary stuff I don't talk about in detail, but I think it is important to sort of say, hey, someday I wanna open up the first tiny home community in California and I want it to be bungalows like we see in Venice, California. And I think that people should be able to live in a community that has a high net worth and still be given the option to live in a smaller footprint and still have the same opportunities as other people with uh, the net worth that can afford a larger footprint, but still be in the same neighborhood. Hmm. That's a that's a goal I will accomplish. I'm not going to tell you how, but I, I talk about it often because it's something that I love. It's a contribution uh, to the community where as a single parent myself who broke my back to live in communities where I could put my kids behind a gate so that when I was working, I didn't have to worry about them. And in communities where I could put them in schools that were the equivalent of a private school education in a public school setting, because the, you know, the net worth, you know, to be able to live in that neighborhood um, was cost prohibitive in many ways for me, but I did it. Um, I think that people deserve to live in a way that is commensurate with their values, not just their wallet. 
And um, that's a big goal that I talk about. I don't know how to achieve it and I don't know when, but uh, if I don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. There's a big difference. There's a lot of power in saying, I wish I could build a tiny home community that was inclusive. And the fine line between me saying, I'm working on building a tiny home community that is inclusive. And the difference being, I got started and I started organizing it on paper and I started talking about it and I started researching it and I started implementing it. A lot of power in saying, I am, not I wish. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> what are you going to do with the home show? So I am a guest speaker on the main stage um, for the home show in Eugene, Oregon. And that is coming up March 11th through the 13th. Okay. And I'll be speaking about remodeling and keeping yourself organized and how to be successful when you're going through a home remodel and uh, some other really great tools and skill sets in terms of what I've experienced as a woodworker, as a, as a woman in this industry and beyond. Um, I'm looking forward to doing so with my co-star from Curb Appeal Extreme, John Gidding, who will also be joining me as a main guest speaker. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it's the other way around. I'll be joining him. Um, he actually got me involved with this. John and I continue to be very good friends. Um, and this is actually uh, one of my first um, in-person trade show speaking engagements because everything's been online uh, because of the last couple of years. Cool. So this will be, we'll be able to watch your, will we be able to watch this? You know, I'm not sure about that, but I will find that out. I'll make sure that if there's the possibility of streaming it, I can probably end up doing an Instagram live, mm -hmm. but I will definitely promote it to see if that's something that is possible. Great. Cause this, that'll be just a few days after this show airs. Um, that's right so we'd yeah love to, i'd 7th. love to share that with the audience absolutely um, will you continue with hgtv or absolutely i hope to you know i have a wonderful relationship with hgtv as well as the production company that hired me to film curb appeal extreme i couldn't have had a better first experience on television um between the two i am so incredibly grateful i just work with the best, most professional, loving, and supportive um, production company and distribution network that I could possibly have hoped for. And in the meantime, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of really great things um, at home as well. So uh, wherever I am, I know that I'm spending my time in a way where when I'm, whenever I'm called to do another thing away from home, there's a little bit of sadness about that because I've got so many really great things happening. Um, I recently moved to Manhattan Beach, California, where I have family here in town and it's just been glorious. Um, I've waited to move over here for a really long time. I live about four blocks from the ocean. So I'm on the beach twice a day. Um, so, you know, I have a lot of things at home, but I'm also a fresh empty nester. So. I'm able to travel and do really cool things and speak to some amazing people in the trades as well as develop my businesses. And I think that to blend the two together is forcing me to automate the business part that, uh, you know, requires me to be home. So that just, it's just sharpening me one, one, you know, the traveling schedule that I have sharpens 
my ability to automate myself so that I can really sort of kill two birds with one stone. If, if, if I were to use a euphemism, um, it's really important for me to be able to do all the things because, you know, you lose some things in life and you recognize how important time is. And um, that has been the case in my life as many people have lost some really important people and things over the last couple of years. It's really helped me understand um, that, uh, like my grandfather said, you can sleep when you die. <laughs> I'm hmm. trying to do all the things. <laughs> what is the first thing you do every day? First thing I do every day, I pet my dog. I have this little dog that my daughter adopted, and I swore to her that I would never take care of it if she dumped it on me, and I had to eat those words five years ago. And she's just the cutest little rat I've ever met. So we go on a little beach walk. We have some um, breakfast and a cup of coffee and uh, take a shower, head straight to the workshop, which is in the back of my property here. And I go to work. What's your biggest lesson? Biggest, biggest lesson. Yeah. To not overthink so much. I think that the, the, my imagination uh, about how horrible things could turn out would make me an incredible screenwriter of like horror movies or something. <laughs> <laughs> I would win Oscars left and right. Um, overthinking is just a killer of all dreams and all hopes. And um, it's a liar, actually. So I've, I've really learned that overthinking ends up being 90% of the work and actual doing took 10% of the effort that I thought it would. Amazing. Let's do a quick speed round here. Best tool. My Festool TS55 track saw. That's my baby. Best joke. Um, best joke. You know, I can't remember the jokes. I can't either. <laughs> so I am so bad. I literally have to have a cheat sheet or like a three by five index card to remember jokes. Best food in LA. <sighs> Anything tacos. I would say El Sombrero in Manhattan Beach on Manhattan Avenue. Best freaking tacos on the West side. I was going to say it's got to be tacos. Mm -hmm. Five words to describe yourself. Brave, ambitious, flexible, loyal, and a little bit naive. We're all a little bit naive, aren't we? We are. But I think that when you call yourself naive, it can, it can represent the fact that you're putting yourself in new situations you know nothing about. And I think that's a good thing. How about three or four, whatever, how many words for all the little mm -hmm. girls out there that are, you know, un or parents that are listening to this, that they should tell their daughters. Be independent, believe in yourself, focus on what you love and not what other people love. Always be a student. Never let anyone tell you no. And that might be a tough one for the parents to let the daughters hear. 
And what's the message for all the men on the on out in the construction world? I think the most important message is you guys work your asses off as we do. And you put so much emphasis on creating an identity based on what you provide and how hard you work. And it's not fair. It is so hard for men in this society to, to carry that cross and that burden and that expectation. And it's almost thankless. And if I were to give men a message, I would say from a single parent who mostly raised the kids, you know, on, on the day-to-day on my own, uh, find a way to work less and spend more time with your children because they need you. And do not ever make the mistake that you are what you make, what you earn, or what you provide. You are what you say, what you act, and what you show. And that's all a good woman, a good family, and a good client would ever want or expect from you. I would also say that ego is a creativity killer. And ego is something that is sort of like a... um, a uh, weighted blanket for fear, but it doesn't really work. Um, That ego will never protect you like vulnerability will. In fact, I've built my brand off of expressing all the ways I have got. And I think it's a good thing because people can relate to failures, indiscretions, because when you're talking about them openly, you're actually explaining what you've learned. And that's all anyone ever expects of anyone, especially for men, is that you learn something and that that's what you're going to be. Um, I think that's the greatest way to create your identity, not by what you have avoided, um, but what you've learned from your failures. Men have it really, really hard. Not that it's any comparison or a foot race, but the expectations that we put on our children that our male children are sort of these unspoken expectations that you know nobody likes to feel like all of their effort and hard work and resilience is somehow what they're supposed to do. I have two boys and two girls and I treat them equally. And so I'm able to talk to both sides. I'm also black and white. I'm able to talk to both of those sides as well. I feel like everyone has uh, a part of their experience that needs to be acknowledged. And just because you're a man in a male-dominated don- industry doesn't mean that a woman as a minority can't speak to what she sees as, as a really tough part that men have uh, weighing on their shoulders. I wish I'd met you 20 years ago, Rachel. <laughs> did, you, did you did you know that 20 years ago um that's incredible i don't know if i knew that 20 years ago but you know there's a lot that comes from uh you know my ex-husband and i had you know our ups and downs and now as adults that have adult children we talk often about the things that we did wrong the things that we failed at the things that we could have done better and that comes with age so I think the answer is I probably didn't know, 
Um, but I'm wholly aware and I'm glad I'm aware at this point in my life where um, I can speak freely to my kids and say, hey, you know, the thing that you saw or the thing that you heard, you know, I want to, I want to let you know what that was and that I've learned more uh, since then. So it's, it's rewarding to understand that my kids are seeing both of us look back on our lives and say, hey, you know, don't do as I say, and definitely don't do as I do, but find your way in, in love and compassion and understanding. Rachel, I appreciate you being here so much today. Thank you so much. This has been a, such a pleasure. I think that really diving past the career and getting to know the person really helps us understand how really great um, journeys uh, come to fruition. And I, I, I think my greatest goal is to make my kids proud of me. Uh, you guys out there, again, I'm, I'm talking to Rachel Taylor. You can find her on Instagram at Rachel Builds. Um, she's also Dirt Diggler there. That was my favorite post I've seen. There's a lot of great posts, but Dirt Diggler got me right away. I was hooked. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> um, and um, you can see her on HGTV at Curb Appeal Extreme. Um, also on Discovery Plus as well. I just am so lucky to be able to talk to people like you in the trades and to inspire other people who aren't um, to be a part of this journey that I've taken that has just been so rewarding that helps me feel connected to um, so many things that I never knew um, spoke to my heart and couldn't thank you enough for having me on today. Let's do it again sometime and keep following that North Star and um, I, I'm very grateful to you for taking time out to speak with me today. Thanks so much, Mike. Hey, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Right now, I want to give a shout out to Robin Pearson, formerly known as HVAC Warrior Woman on Instagram. She's no longer there. She's just on the Hammer app as Robin P. She's with the Local 350 in Nevada, and she's doing her best to spread positivity in the trades and to bring the numbers of women up in her local union, currently at two, up to whatever she can. Keep pushing, Robin. We appreciate you. It's like Gina Hoyt said, big changes start with small steps. And speaking of the Hammer app, you can find me there too, at Mike Kenoki. You can find me at the Contracting Handbook on Instagram. You can find me at mike kenoki one on Venmo if you want to make a contribution for production. But more importantly, if you felt affirmation or that something you heard today in this podcast made a difference, Leave a review on iTunes or on the podcast app. You can go to my website, but try iTunes. Because you know when you do that, it really, really helps get word about this pod out there. Okay, guys. Thanks a lot. That's all I got. Later.